All right. Um, so, hi. My name is Eric. I am the pastoral intern over here at Indelible Grace Church, and I have the privilege of sharing God's Word with you today. And so, if you want to turn to page four in your bulletins, we'll read the text for today. But before we start reading, I just really wanted to set the context of what's happening. Um, we're reading from Mark chapter six, but the first half of Mark. Uh, Mark, the author, is constantly forcing the reader to ask the question, who is Jesus? Um, This, by the way, is one of the reasons why Mark is a really easy book to read with uh, those who are unchurched. It's really accessible. But Jesus, throughout the first half, he's uh, performing miracles, he's he's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's pronouncing the forgiveness of sins upon people. And people are constantly asking, who is this man? Why does he speak like that? Um, where does his authority come from? And even at one point, um, Jesus, he, he calms the sea and the winds, and the disciples ask among themselves, who then is this that um, the sea and the wind obey him? And so this will eventually uh, climax in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus asks, um, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? Um, to which Peter responds, you are the Christ. But before we get there, again, we're studying from Mark chapter 6 today. And so I'll read out loud, and then you guys can read along. This is the word of the Lord. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So this is my outline, three points. First point, I learned this from Pastor Michael. First point, uh, people take offense at Jesus. Second point, Jesus offends people. And third point, how can we not get offended? How can we guard ourselves from being offended? So point number one, people take offense at Jesus. Um, Jesus, the hometown boy, has returned after having left Nazareth. But he hasn't just returned. He, his reputation has preceded him. He's been going around the lake towns. He's been, again, healing people and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And we have reason to believe that his reputation is not so positive in his hometown. Uh, in, earlier in March chapter 3, you may remember that uh, Jesus' mother and his brothers tried to come and rescue him because they thought that he was crazy for doing all these ministry stuff. And so he comes... Um, back to his hometown. But this visit isn't just to visit his family. He comes and he brings his disciples. He's here to work. He's here to teach. He's here to continue discipling. And so when the Sabbath rolls around, we see that um, he is invited to teach in the synagogue. And there must have been some people who were in the synagogue who were a little bit suspicious of him. You know, people who thought like, you know, who is this Jesus? What does he think that he has that he can teach me? But apparently they were still willing to hear him out. So uh, there's this synagogue, right? And there's this, in the congregation, there are people who are old friends, family friends, in-laws, you know, maybe that girl who used to have a crush on Jesus. Um, people who knew Jesus and had grown up with him. And we don't 
read, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus teaches, but we only read about the reaction of the townspeople. And they say in verse 2, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, I think it's interesting that the townspeople are not offended by Jesus' refusal to do miracles or say wise things, but it's in his doing those things. It's because Jesus was so wise. It's because he was so mighty that they take offense. And so we have to ask ourselves, why does this offend the townspeople? Why does this offend them? And immediately following in verse 3, we see their logic. They say to themselves, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they take offense, not because Jesus, the miracle worker, is doing miraculous things, but they take offense because they thought that they knew Jesus. They thought that they knew him and his family and his upbringing so intimately. They had seen Jesus um, growing up. They had seen him riding a bicycle or playing with a dreidel. You know, they had known Jesus. So there was this tension between having known Jesus and the Jesus that was before them who was um, doing these miraculous things and um, saying these wise and profound statements. Now, to emphasize this even further, we see that they ask themselves, is not this the carpenter? And the Greek word for that, I don't know how to pronounce, but... I hear that the Greek word for that can mean not just a carpenter who works with wood, but a stonemason or a blacksmith. So this person, um, this, yeah, this carpenter would repair furniture, would repair farm implements, would be involved in construction and be involved with home repair. And so this only emphasizes just how much um, the townspeople saw Jesus. It was a very public vocation. Um, and so, again, they thought that they knew Jesus, and as a result, they take offense. And so I think the question that comes before us is, why does knowing Jesus offend the people? Shouldn't it have made them more likely to see how he fulfills the messianic prophecies? Shouldn't it have made them more likely to see how unique he was or how different he was and how much he was going to be the savior of the world? And so this leads to point number two, is that Jesus offends people. And I think from the text we see Jesus offending the people on two levels. The first level that Jesus offends the people is by his lowliness or his ordinariness or his humanity. So like we've been saying, the townspeople, again, were offended not just because uh, they had seen uh, Jesus, but they they thought that they knew Jesus. And yet their knowledge of Jesus was in a very limited way. Um, See, it's true that he is the carpenter. It's true that he's the son of Mary, the brother of all these guys. And yet he's also at the same time so much more. And so because of their small views of Jesus, because of their lowly expectations of Jesus, they couldn't see the the bigness or the grandness or the majesty of who Jesus really was. And one commentator describes this lack of understanding as the veil of ordinariness. The townspeople could not see past the veil of ordinariness. Apparently, Jesus must have been so ordinary that even during his childhood, there was nothing about his childhood that would have betrayed his you know, future kingship. There was nothing about him that made people pause and think like, there's something different about Jesus, you know. I think he's going to be something else. He was so ordinary that people, again, were were offended. And furthermore, Jesus is over here teaching without any credentials. He hasn't studied under any rabbi. And so he is here, this ordinary man, teaching, again, with wisdom and power. So because of the 
lowly expectations of the townspeople, they take offense. Um, they refuse to learn things from Jesus. And this reminds me of when I was in college. Um, when I was at East Merced, um, this is some obscure campus in the Central Valley. You may or may not have heard of it. It's not important. But when I was at Merced, when I first, became, when I first went to school there, the school had just opened. And so when I was a freshman, there were no sophomores, juniors, or seniors. And when I was a sophomore, there were no juniors or seniors. And so I was always the oldest class. And also, uh, my friends and I helped to plant the Christian club on campus, the University chapter there. And so we were always like the leaders because, again, there was nobody older than us. And so whenever these young you know, hoodlums would try to come up to me and try to tell me like, you know, what I'm doing wrong or how we can improve the fellowship, you know, how... I'm, you know, messing things up. You know, I would just, like, ignore them, right? Like, you're a freshman. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, you don't understand how complex it is to run a college ministry, right? You're not as wise as I am. And so I would just, like, you know, blow them off. But when somebody older, like my pastor or my staff worker, would say the exact same thing a couple days later, I would be like, yes. So wise. I've never heard this before. And so because I'm older than these you know, younger freshmen, I thought like, I had to have more wisdom. Like, um, I would be offended when they tried to challenge my worldview or try to challenge my thoughts. Um, I only wanted to listen to people that I thought were worth listening to. Instead of humbly considering people for what they had to say, I only wanted to listen to people that I thought were worth listening to. And again, I wonder if our preconceived notions keep us from hearing God through ordinary means. Um, or another way to say that is, do your preconceived notions keep you from seeing the real Jesus past the veil of ordinariness? Um, in our small groups, we're going through the book of Judges right now, and one of the characters that we were studying um, is Micah and his mom, and how you know, they create this uh, metal image and this carved image. And in our small group, we had this really interesting discussion about how um, we create images and we worship them versus the real God who cannot be contained in images and how all of us are really prone to create images. And one member in our small group discussion, uh, he made a very interesting remark. He said that the um, Jesus that he is tempted to create and imagine is a Jesus that doesn't challenge him on things like poverty or doesn't challenge him on things like how generous he is with his um, assets. This Jesus that he imagines only cares about the, like the nebulous, ethereal, spiritual things. Um, this Jesus only cares that we go to heaven. And yet, and this person was commenting about how um, the real Jesus that he encounters, though, in the scriptures is a Jesus that was very concerned about the poor and very concerned about the hungry. And I just want to share just really quickly one passage um, from the Bible that talks about this. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 25, Jesus talks, is talking about the second coming, when he's going to return. And he describes himself as a shepherd who separates the sheep and the goats. And to one of these groups, he says to them, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? 
Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus identifies with the poor and the hungry. He identifies with the ordinary people. He identifies himself as um, the panhandler who is always hassling us. He identifies himself as you know, those people dressed up in Santa hats outside of Best Buy you know, telling us that we need to donate. He identifies with the people who are in prison and the people who are hurting. So again, I wonder, do we look for Jesus only in the Christian celebrities, in Tim Keller and John Piper? Or, yeah, do we look for Jesus only in the Christian celebrities, in the stunning and the spectacular? Or are we humble enough to notice him and to seek him and to worship him, even in the ordinary things? So again, Jesus offends the townspeople and he offends people by his ordinariness. Now, the second level, I think, on which Jesus offends the townspeople is not simply by his ordinariness, but by his power, his divinity, his claim to be the Messiah. Um, in verse 2, we read the people saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, again, we don't know exactly what Jesus teaches, but I want to say that I think we can make some speculations or some educated guesses. I think that Jesus' teachings were probably self-centered, as if somehow he were the one that the scriptures were pointing to, and as if somehow he were the one that was the fulfillment of those scriptures, and as if when he came near, that the kingdom of God was coming near, and that people should respond in repentance. And so I think he was making some really bold claims, and that this, as a result... Um, offended the townspeople, not simply by his ordinariness, but his extraordinary wisdom and his divine power. Now, I think the reason why they were offended by Jesus' claims to fulfill the scriptures is because they already had preconceived notions about what the Messiah would look like, what the Messiah would come to accomplish. You see, this Messiah that they were expecting and hoping for and waiting for was a, was a Messiah who would come in a glorious garb, he would come from a palace somewhere. He would come with power and force. He would come with a mighty army. And he would come to deliver Israel from the Roman oppression that they were facing at the time. And yet he was Jesus, right? He doesn't come with an army, but he comes with this ragtag group of disciples, this uneducated fishermen, these quarrelsome brothers, these despised tax collectors. He comes with... These uneducated people. And here was Jesus. He wasn't born into a royal palace somewhere. He wasn't instructed in the art of war. He wasn't trained by military generals. He was a carpenter from a hick town in Nazareth. And so their expectations of what Jesus would look like, um, what Jesus would come to accomplish, kept them from seeing the real Messiah when he was there in the flesh. Now some of you guys know um, that I work... With university, it's a Christian club over at Cal State East Bay. And part of my job description is to uh, do evangelism, talk with non-believers, talk with people who are, you know, um, asking questions about faith. And there's this one friend, we'll call him Mike. And Mike, is there a Mike in here? No? No, right? Okay. So Mike, uh, we like Mike. He, he comes to our Bible studies. He uh, reads the books that we uh, ask him to read. He engages with us. He uh, dialogues with us. And so he has, like, really good questions. 
But Mike has some hang-ups with Christianity. And one of his hang-ups is that God condemns homosexuals. His question is, why can't God just love everybody and accept everybody? Why can't God just treat people, you know? It's not like homosexuals chose to be homosexual, right? They were born like that, right? According to him. And so he has expectations about what God should look like and how God should act. And that keeps him from seeing and believing the real Messiah. And I wonder, how about for us? Is it possible that we too have expectations that keep us from seeing the real Messiah? I think for some of us, I think we have these expectations that God wants us to be good people. And so when we mess up, we think that God is somehow disappointed with us. Or that, you know, maybe, he's, maybe he still loves us, but he, he's more like just putting up with us. It's not that he actually takes delight in us. It's not that he actually is tender toward us or affectionate toward us. He just kind of like, you know, puts up with us. And I think our limited understanding of God keeps us from seeing, from seeing the real Messiah. When Jesus says, come to me, you who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. I think for other, others of us, we think that God, um, our expectations of God or our understanding of God is limited. We think that God is just interested in us having good quiet times or interested in us uh, having righteous dating relationships or interested in our personal security or in our self-esteem or in our personal trials that need to be delivered from. And I think that keeps us from seeing that God is at work restoring all of creation, that he is at work bringing the kingdom of God to bear upon the lost and the hungry and the hurting and the oppressed, the orphans and the widows. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't care about your quiet times or doesn't care about your righteous dating relationships, but I wonder, again, like if our expectations, our cultural expectations keep blind us, keep us from seeing the real Messiah, keep us from seeing who Jesus really is and what it is that he came to accomplish. So Jesus offends the townspeople on two levels, his ordinariness and his divinity. So the question, the third point, how do we not get offended? How can we keep ourselves from um, taking offense at this Jesus? And I want to say that the way we do that is by understanding who Jesus really is. As we study and meditate and understand what the gospel is, what it is that Jesus really came to do, what it is that he came to accomplish, we can be open to him without taking offense. So why then did Jesus have to come with such ordinariness and such lowliness, right? If he was going to be the savior of the world, why not just like you know, split open the heavens and descend with like this like aura shining? Why not do that so everybody would see and believe? Why did he have to come with such ordinariness and lowliness? And he came so that he could identify with sinners. Why did he get baptized, right? If, it's not like Jesus had sinned or needed to repent of anything. But Jesus got baptized so that he could identify with sinners. Why was Jesus, why did Jesus go through the wilderness and fast for 40 days? It's because he was identifying with Israel that had also gone through the wilderness but had failed. They had grumbled and tested God. But Jesus goes through um, the wilderness with perfect obedience, with perfect trust in God. Only by becoming man could Jesus sympathize with us in our weakness? Only by becoming man could he act as a representative on our behalf. And only by becoming man could, could he become the substitute sacrifice that we needed. Where the other side of the coin is, 
Why did Jesus have to come with such power or such wisdom? How come he couldn't just be a good teacher? The answer is because Jesus doesn't come to just give us uh, rules or laws to follow. Throughout the scripture, we are uh, constantly reminded that we are not saved by our own power, by our own wisdom, by our own strength, but that God is the one who does the redeeming work, that God is the one who uh, accomplishes salvation on our behalf. So Jesus comes in order to be the mediator between man and God. You see, the gospel story is not simply about how we can, uh, how we need to love God more. It's not about how we need to not take offense at God. The gospel story is about how um, Jesus Christ takes on flesh. He becomes an offense not simply to the Israelites, not simply to the towns, people in Nazareth, but he becomes an offense to God. He bears the wrath that was in store for sinners so that we could have the hope and the life and the peace and the righteousness, the, the benefits that, could, that was in store for the righteous. The gospel is not simply about how Jesus comes and selects the best-looking pe- people or the holiest people or the smartest people, but that he takes hold of ordinary people and he saves them through an extraordinary salvation. You see, and when we understand how low Jesus came, how condescendingly he approached us um, in order to raise us up to such spectacular heights, in order to secure for us such a marvelous salvation. Our hearts will, will soar with love and gratitude. At that point, we won't be taking offense. We won't be saying, God, why didn't you do this for me? Why didn't you get me, um, I don't know, that car or that girlfriend? How come you had to do this? How come my parents had to get a divorce? How come I have to suffer? We won't be taking offense because we will understand that he has already given us everything. He has already accomplished everything, and he's in the work of accomplishing everything. He has already secured for us that which we were powerless to do. And when we understand that, we will gladly and eternally serve and love the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he comes to us, that he came to us, not simply to just offend us, but in order to save us. And we pray, Father, that this, this truth, this gospel would sink deeper and deeper into our hearts so that we may not grow offended by who you are and how you act, but that we can be open, that we can worship you for all that you do. So Jesus, we pray that you would give us the strength and the eyes to see past the veil of ordinariness and to worship you humbly. In your name we pray. Amen.